we, we can fear being exposed. Uh, I, I, even when I say it, you might start thinking about it and think of, of something like, uh, you know, dreams that probably most every person has had in this room about showing up at school and showing up at work and, and somehow you don't have any pants on and you're walking around and you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And, and, and it just scares the life out of you. It's one of the worst nightmares any person can have because we just, we don't like that feeling of, of people being able to see right into us. And, and it's such a struggle when we, we think about being exposed, it, it, we can think about being exposed in so many different ways, and the dangers of it, being, being exposed physically. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, Steve Wolf and I were working in Darfur in Sudan, and, and in one of the trips up there, I had I'd forgotten any type of lip balm or chapstick or anything like that, and, and I was exposed to the elements, and I am a very soft and gentle person and I do not like, I don't like camping. I don't like doing anything like that. And now I'm, I'm six weeks in this area and, 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 and out in the middle of nowhere. And, and I'm exposed. My lips are exposed to the elements. And, and early on in the trip, because of that, uh, I started to, the middle of my lips started cracking. And, and it ended up cracking so bad that it was like all the way down to the skin on one side and all the way down deep into the, the inside of my lip. And I just had to walk around for weeks like that. And, and it was because I was exposed. And, it, and, it's, and it's painful to be exposed physically to the world around you. That's why we buy chapstick. That's why we put on sunscreen when we, when we go out and go to the beach because we, we, don't, we want protection from physical exposure to the elements around us and and mentally you know taking a step even deeper towards our souls we we fear being mentally exposed i know for a fact i am not the only person in this room who has been around a conversation where the conversation is happening and people are talking about you know maybe politics or economics or or history or something like that and it's something that you feel like you should know what they're talking about. And as the conversation's going on, you're, you're nodding your head like, oh yes, yeah, mm-hmm. And the whole time you're thinking, please, please don't ask me a question right now. Please. Because I'll be exposed. Everybody will know now as I him and haw. I, don't, I didn't know what was going on. I was just nodding my head like a goofball trying to pretend like I knew what was going on. And, and we fear that. It, it, it motivates us to try to hide ourselves from the people around us. And, and there's a deeper and darker type of exposure that we all struggle with. Spiritual exposure is the worst of all exposures and it is the least recognized because it's so hard to see. We can organize our lives in such a way, whether we're believers or non-believers, in such a way that, that people become very hard to see what it is that we are struggling with. And, and we work hard to cover those things up so that nobody will know. And, and we know about them as a result of that. It causes this deep down fear in our souls that we don't want to think about. 
And as these fears can be exposed and can be brought to the surface, they usually come towards us in times of, of crisis. You know, times of, of, you know, the foxhole mentality. When, when person is afraid, like honestly afraid that they, they might die. And, you know, if the pain, you know, you're in the plane, the plane starts jumping up and down and, and it feels like everything's out of control. And then suddenly all this spiritual exposure gets pushed to the forefront. And we're like, ah. I don't, I don't know how to handle this. What do I do? Pray, you know, God, just get me out of this. I'll do whatever you want if you just get me out of this one situation. We're terrified by it. And as we look at the verses that I just read, this is really a text about exposure. And it starts, this story starts, it begins with this impossible dilemma. Look at it again in verse 3. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman, Jesus, a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, in the midst of the people, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? A powerful question. Before we get into the actual question posed to Jesus, I want to first point out the the horrifying issue of sin that is exposed in this passage. You think about the obvious thing that's going on with this girl who who is put in the midst of this group of people before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords himself, and her sin is exposed in radical ways, in ways that nobody would ever want to endure. And her sin is unquestioned in any way. She was caught in the very act of adultery. And when she's looking around at the people's faces, there's no hope to be found here. She, she is caught, and as the Pharisees are pointed, have pointed out to Jesus, by the law of Moses, she must be stoned. Now, there's, there's added aspects to the story when, when you understand there's only a handful of things that somebody could really be stoned for in the old covenant law. And, and one of them is interesting because it, uh, a man and a woman caught in adultery after they've actually consummated the marriage, that doesn't require stoning. But, but when it is somebody who is betrothed, to us when we talk about being betrothed, you know, you're in engagement and, and you're engaged to somebody and, and you just kind of, you know, if you want to break it off, you just break it off and it's no big deal. But at this time, to be betrothed, you are actually married to that person. You just haven't gone through that final step where the marriage has been consummated. And, and for the old covenant law, in that place, when you're in that place, if a woman is caught cheating on her husband, she's to be stoned. And because of that, it's good to remember what we're talking about here is most likely in our culture, just a girl, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. When you're talking about exposure here, I want you to feel the weight of that. She is caught, she's brought by these adults, by these leaders in the community, and she sat in front of a group of people, and she is terrified. 
terrified, not knowing what is going to happen. She's terrified and mortified by the fact that her sin has been brought before this group of people. And I'm sure part of her maybe just wants to die and get it over with. But there's also a sin. There's a sin of the accusers themselves, which is much harder to see. As I said, stoning doesn't come up a whole lot in the Old Covenant. And especially stoning like this, it's, it, it would be recorded in some aspects within Jewish history that stoning of, of, a, of a girl who was betrothed to a man, it just didn't happen very often. And the reason it didn't happen very often was because catching someone in the act of doing this is very difficult. <laughs> you know, people aren't going to go ahead and be like, hey, let me sit in this way for all to see. They're going to hide it. They're going to cover it up. They're going to try to do all that they can to make sure that nobody finds out what is happening. Unless, what Mary may very well be true in this situation, the person is set up. I'm not saying that the person actually didn't commit the sin, but the person was caught up in a setup. And I think that may be possible. Just because you look at verse 4 and, and, and what they say is, Teacher, this woman it was caught in adultery in the very act of adultery. They're here and, and the Pharisees are saying, we are the witnesses of this. And that is an important part of the story because the, the witness of the, the, this, this person who's caught in sin is going to be the person who has to cast the first stone. It, it kind of makes sure that if, if you're going to bring this type of accusation, you better know what you're doing because you're going to be the one who has to cast the first stone because it's really hard to think, unless you have a seriously seared conscience, it's really hard to think that a person is going to pick up a stone and throw it at, a, at the face of somebody and kill them if what they're being accused of, this person hasn't actually witnessed. So there's, there's this protection built into the system. And so these men, they caught her in the very act of it. And this brings up a question. Again, how did they know? Were they the ones who actually set up the situation? Did they find the right person and mix it right, the right other person and organize it in all the such, such a way that they could make sure that this was going to happen and so they would catch her and so they can bring this before Jesus and try to test him? I asked that for an obvious reason. There's two people involved in the act, right? Where's the man? The woman is the only one who's been brought forth. Where is the man at? Is he complicit in what's going on in this situation? Moving on, though, there's nobody who is questioning the girl's guilt. But there is more that is going on. As we look at verse 6, we read, They said, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. They're testing him. Again, it, it feels like it's, it's connecting their complicity to the story themselves. They, they organize this so that they can put Jesus to the test. Throughout the synoptics, we see all kinds of stories where 
where the Sadducees and the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're asking him all types of questions. And, and some of them are, you know, to them they sounded huge. They sounded powerful. They asked him questions like, you know, if a woman marries a man and then the man dies according to the law, she should marry his brother so that, that the line would carry on. But then what if that brother dies and then she marries another brother and then that brother dies and she marries another brother and all these brothers. If you believe that there is a resurrection when she's resurrected, so who's the husband? And they think, oh, there we go. We've got him. We can't, he can't get out of this one. So they're testing him. Again, in other questions, they're, they're bringing forth questions of taxes. And, and they feel like we've, we've got him. If he, if he answers in this way, the Jews are going to hate him. But if he answers in this way, he's in trouble with the Romans. And he handles these issues so simply. And they don't know what to do, and they're frustrated, so they contrive a plan that seems as though there is no way to get out of this terrifying dilemma. You look at what is at stake here and you understand that this is no small issue that's being brought before Jesus. That what's at stake here is this isn't some fable that they're making up. This isn't governmental policy. This is a woman's life who's standing in front of him. Depending on how he's answering, she's going to die. She's probably standing there weeping and shaking. Her life is hanging in the balance. More than that, the very holiness of God is at stake. Jesus, are you going to just sweep? Are you going to just sweep it all under the rug? Are you going to take the law of Moses and you're just going to cast it out? What are you going to do? Are you going to stone her? And in stoning her, your very ministry is at stake. As James Montgomery Boyce points out, if if they start casting stones at her and they, she dies, they win because here's the man who's walking around saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Pharisees can walk behind him and be like, yeah, rest? Or getting stoned? Do you really want to follow this guy? There's so much at stake, and you can feel the tensions mounting as the crowds are watching and the girl is exposed and terrified and the Pharisees are just salivating as, as their plan is just coming to fruition. They're seeing it and they're like, oh, we totally have him now. There's no way he will ever get out of this. An unsolvable problem. Like the Jews being pushed up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army are closing in. And there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. There's nothing that can save him from this situation. But here, you have these assailants and they're guilty and hopeless and exposed victim. And they're going to all learn something, a lesson that we see all throughout Scripture. Something that the Pharaoh learned very well as him and his army entered into the Red Sea and got crushed. They're going to learn something, and that is with man, it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
There was no fretting in the heart of Jesus Christ. He knew the hearts of these men. We read that all throughout John's John's gospel. He knew the hearts of these men. He knew how justice and mercy work together in his plan for humanity. He knew what we read in John 1.14 that he tabernacled among us so that he could put on display the glory of God, the glory seen in both grace and truth. There was no fretting because of who Jesus is. As we go on, you see the initial response of Jesus, and it is, it is spectacular. It is, it is so Amazing when you look at John at, at verse six, um, he says uh, they, they're asking him. So you know, what are you going to do here, Jesus? How are you going to handle this? We've caught you, and what does Jesus do? But Jesus stooped down on the ground and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. <laughs> I, this is I I love as you may have already figured out. I love this story. I love it. He stoops down on the ground and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. And you know they're looking at him. They're like, ah! What, what are you doing? <laughs> why, why are you doing that? And we've wondered that. I mean, how many people have asked questions of well, what was he doing? Why, why is, why would, what's he writing on the ground? Is he, draw, is he drawing out emojis? Buying time? Trying to think of how to handle this horrible situation? Or other stories that we like to talk about. Things like, is he writing down the names of the people who are standing around? And as he writes out their names and they're looking down and then he starts writing out sins that they're struggling with or maybe how they're complicit in the story itself. Is he writing out the Ten Commandments? As the Holy Spirit works upon their hearts. What is he writing? What is he doing as he's doing that? My personal view and, and maybe some of you don't know me as well, but you might get to know me by uh, how I think about this and, and how I really wrestle with and interpret this, and that is, I don't care. I, I don't care. I don't care what he was doing. If God wanted me to know what he was writing on the ground, he would have said, this is what he was writing on the ground, but he didn't. He didn't tell me. I think the more important question is not what was he writing on the ground, is why was he writing it on the ground? And I think possibly the answer to that is very possible, is very powerful. I think he was writing on the ground to expose the sin that was within the Pharisees' hearts. You look at verse 7 and he says, and this is right after he says he, he went down on the ground and he started writing on the ground as though he did not hear. And how do they respond? So when they continued asking, they continued. They continued on. Think about all the planning that must have went into this scenario developing. And now right when they're at the place of, give me an answer. We've nailed you. We are entering your ministry now. This is done. They don't want to wait. But he's going to make them wait. They don't want to sit around and watch some guy draw on the ground. But that's exactly what he's going to do. 
And as, they, as he makes them wait, you can, you can almost sense them, like I said, just salivating at the mouth. Will you just stand up and give an answer? We want this woman dead, and we want her dead at your hand. We want blood, and we want it right now. The sin that would be exposed in that would be powerful. It would not have been easily seen unless Jesus had stooped on the ground and just waited patiently. But they wouldn't get any blood because Jesus just stooped there. He's, he, just, he just sat there and, and did nothing. You've got to love that. You've got to love that about him, the patience, the lack of fretting, the lack of fear. Then just as victory appears secure to these to these Pharisees, Jesus stands up. And if I was one of them and I was wrapped in my own sin, I might be thinking, now, here it comes. And they shouldn't have been thinking that. Because where does he go? He raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. He stood up and he said, that's fine. The first one who is without sin among you and your sins are many, overwhelming. Go ahead and cast the first stone. And with that, with one, with one verbal punch, he went, he went matrix on them all and just crushed them all. He just flattened them with one, with one sentence. It, it reminds me of, uh, uh, for people who are at least as old as I am, will remember who Mike Tyson is. And Mike Tyson has one of my favorite sports quotes ever. And I do my own Mike Tyson impersonation. I'm not going to do it for you now because it's being recorded. And, but his, his line... His line is, was, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And, and Mike Tyson was a ferocious fighter, and people would study his technique, and, and they would have a plan right up until they got in front of him, and they took the first blow. And then all those plans go out the window. And I think of that, and I look at this text, and I think, they had a plan until Jesus stood up. And he had something to say. And he has exposed their sin. And as he did it, his response was so simple yet so profound because he does not deny the guilt of the woman. He doesn't say she didn't do it. And in the exact same sentence, he exposes the accuser's sin. He rips it open for all to see. He went, he went six, he's Batman and it was like, Bam! You're done! It's over! The fight is over! You have nowhere to run anymore! I stooped on the ground, you exposed what was going on, I stand up, I say one sentence, and you are done! And they knew they were done! Isn't that the great part about it? It's almost, there, there's, a, there's a way this transpires in the verse, it says, uh, um, and he stooped down again, and he wrote on the ground, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. 
It was like, it was like this joke that, you know, we hear jokes sometimes and we don't get them at first. And we're like, ha ha, oh, now I get it. And that's what it seems like it was. The older ones got it right away and they were hearing them. They're like, okay, I'm leaving. And the younger ones are like, no, but we've got them. And they're like, just come on. It's over with. It's done. There's nowhere to go with that. We have no place for our accusations to land. But what are we going to do? Pick up a stone, bash ourselves in the head, and then throw it at her? We're done. And they walked away. But I want to point out something, that they walked away. Something that, that when I first was really studying this text to teach on it years ago, something that struck me and broke my heart. Because how did they walk away? They, woke away, they walked away unrepentant, unforgiven. Their sin exposed to the world around them and not caring about it at all. They walked away in death. And that is horrible. That should break our hearts. These are real people who if they did not turn in faith to Jesus Christ, confess their sins and repent and receive newness of life, they died in those sins. And they live forever in those sins with the wrath of God constantly hanging on them and being poured out upon them forever and ever and ever. And it is sad. But it's not the case for the woman. That wasn't how it ended for the girl. In fact, as we go on to verse 10, we read, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. No more accusers. In fact, the only person who could have accused her wasn't going to. He was going to forgive her the whole time. He knew before the foundations of the earth what was going to happen in that moment. He knew who she was. He'd numbered the very hairs on her head. He was the king of all kings. He is the judge of the earth. And he said, I don't condemn you. No more accusations left to be addressed. Can you imagine what was going on in her heart? Moments earlier, moments. I, I've said this for many, many years based on my own experience that your life can radically change with one phone call in a moment. Everything about everything that you know can change in an instant and here in an instant this woman's life is going to be radically changed. I, I, it's hard to fathom what would be going on in her heart. Confusion, misunderstanding, uh, uh, gratefulness, brokenness, uh, praise, whatever it might be. She probably felt every emotion imaginable in that moment as Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And these words coming from Jesus had to have landed on her heart in a unique way because this is the very God of the universe saying it to her. I do not condemn you. 
He forgives her in an instant. And, and questions may arise, well, how do we, you know, there's the law here. What about Moses' law? How do we handle that? And there are lots of things that we can talk about along those lines, but I'm not going to talk about them this morning because in the end, this is Jesus and it's his divine prerogative. He gets to do what he wants. He's God. And in his divine prerogative, he forgives this young girl. He's done it before. You remember the man, his friends, lower him through the roof. He's paralyzed. They bring him before Jesus. He looks at him and what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. He can do it. And he did. And it's powerful. It, it, takes, it takes the fear of exposure and it covers it in the indelible, unending grace of God. And I think this woman, this young girl, I think she felt it. I think she experienced it. We, we may, as I said earlier, say, well, what, what about her guilt? You know, how, how are we to think about that? And I think how we think about it this morning is to look at all of this story and go, this is the gospel. This, this is the gospel right here. Exposed sin. The woman knew that she was caught. The girl knew that she had no hope. And then a Savior arrives and says, I do not condemn you because he can. And he does it because this is the gospel. This is what God does. He is both just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. We read this in Romans 8. Uh, Where am I going to start here? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier, the one who declares righteous those who are not righteous, the justifier of the one who's placed his faith in Jesus. This is the gospel. This is why later on we read in Romans, there is now therefore no, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus. He took the sins and he nailed them upon the cross so that they cannot be applied to those who place their faith in what he did. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no more acts to perform to secure it. He jumped through all the hoops. He did all that there was needed so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus, and if you have placed your faith in him and you're walking around terrified by the sin that, that you are struggling with, let me encourage you this morning to start in the place of remembering that he does not condemn you. He took your sin upon himself 2,000 years ago. You have no more hoops to jump through. 
You have no more acts to perform. He already did them all, just like for this girl. Because this is the gospel. This is what we cling to. This is why we rejoice in words like uh, uh, we were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. This is why we rejoice in those words, when we, we, we jump further and we actually see a clear connection here between Paul's words and Jesus' words because in verse 10 he says, as the result of all of what Jesus has done for you, remember that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are, we are his workmanship. And Jesus doesn't say, get your act together and then I will let you go. Then I will say to you, after you've proven that you are a good little girl, then I will let you go. He doesn't say that. He says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Paul says, you were dead and now you're alive because the grace of God lavished upon you. Now no. He's bought you, and you are his workmanship. You're his poem that he has written. And he's written it out so that you would walk in his light. This is the gospel. I think think of these things, and as I contemplate them, I get to the place where I think, I wonder how much the girl ended up knowing. I wonder if sometime off into the future, whether it's depending on how you wrestle with this text, if it was in a handful of months or in a handful of days, Jesus is captured, he's put on a fake trial, and then he's hung on a cross, and then he dies. I wonder if she witnessed it. I wonder if she heard about it just, just sitting in her house sometime later. Somebody comes up, some friend comes up and says, hey, you know that guy? You know that guy that did that thing for you? They killed him yesterday. He's dead. I wonder if she thought about all of that and thought, he spared me, but I was not spared. Or I'm sorry, he spared me, but he was not spared. He spared me, but he was not spared. This is the gospel, and this is the way that we should also look at this. We should should see these words and, and see Christ and see him looking upon our sinful lives and him saying, I do not condemn you. I did not spare myself so that you can be spared. I wanted you to know my love in this way. You you deserved everything that your sin has brought upon you. But I chose not to spare myself so that you would be spared. 
This is the gospel, and it's important for us to remember when we look at a text like John 8, and as we look at it and we think about a girl standing in front of their, her accusers, naked, exposed, her heart ripped open with no hope for any future whatsoever, and God steps in, Jesus steps in and says, I do not condemn you, and we need to take the girl out of the scene and remind ourselves, I'm the girl, that's me. I'm the one who was hopeless and helpless. I'm the one who had all of my sins exposed before a God who knows everything about me. And he said to me, I don't condemn you. Go walk worthy of the gospel now. Go walk in light of what I have done for you. This is why I love stories like this. I love them. We can stand up here and we can go on and on about penal substitutionary atonement. And we could talk about propitiation ad nauseum. But when we come to a story like this, is when it becomes real for us. We go, oh, oh, that's the gospel. That's what it is. That's how he has worked in my heart. That's what he has saved me from. And we see it and we love it. We love it. We want to embrace it with all of our hearts. I want you to, want us all, not you, I want me. I want, I want us all to look at these words and, and think about them and meditate upon them and then ask questions like, what would I be without Christ? What would I be without him? I would be eternally exposed. Eternally. Never ending. Eternally exposed in the most terrifying way I can be. Spiritually to ask ourselves, what would I have without Christ? I would have nothing. Everything about my existence would be meaningless and empty if I didn't have Him. I would have nothing. Nothing to hope for. Nothing to yearn for. Everything that I had, every bite that I would take of any meal would be like in my lips and then it would just be gone and I would be left wanting more. Nothing would satisfy me. Nothing would bring me comfort. If I didn't have him, I would have nothing. The psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, he's contemplating his own sin. And he writes, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, God. He's, he's talking about his own sin and how he's wrestling with how come some people have stuff and how come the godly go on struggling. And I don't get it, God. It's like he's calling God out on the carpet and then all of a sudden his heart is opened up and he sees his own sin and he's like, I was like a wild animal before you, God. I was so blinded by my own sin. I was like a beast wandering around in a field. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. 
You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom, I have, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the right way to respond to the gospel. This is the right way for the grace and the truth of God to land upon our hearts and say, man, without you, I would have nothing. And with you, I have everything. And because of you, I can say what we're about to sing. I can say it is well with my soul. Because I have you. It is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford writes, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I can't wait. I'm thinking of his words also when he hastes the day to come for Jesus' return. I can't wait. I can't wait. For all of us in this room who have placed our faith in Christ to stand shoulder to shoulder and remember all the ways in which we fall short with our eyes focused upon Christ and just praising him together. Oh, the bliss of this thought. How do we not praise him? If you are here this morning, if you've been coming to this church for years and you are still carrying around this fear, this this deep, abiding fear of spiritual exposure, today is the day for salvation. Christ is here. He is reaching out. Place your faith in him. Stop carrying the weight of your sin anymore and just put your trust in him. And know what it is to experience your sins nailed upon the cross in such a way that you bear it no more. And praise him. Let's pray now. Father, I am thankful. We are thankful before you. We are humbled by this reminder of the truth of your gospel that we were by nature children of wrath. Our lives turned us into a nail that your just hammer was worthy of pounding upon for all of eternity. But you, God, because you were rich in mercy and love, You gave us life. You gave us everything. You gave us your son. You gave us the words that there is now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And remind us of these truths. Lord, as I prayed earlier, may your love be our comfort and our motivation in life as we walk out these doors. May we rest in them and may we with all that is within us seek to be a mirror, to be a reflection of that love to those around us so that they may see the radiance of your glory. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.